Dear friends, Nicholas Bornos of Capitaling, I'd like to thank you for being with us today. We are delighted to host uh, this 17th annual International Shipping Forum in partnership for one more year with City. I'd like to thank uh, Chris Weatherby and um, Chris Labolpicelli and the whole uh, team of City for uh, sharing the heavy lifting of this event. So um, without any further ado, I'd, uh, I'd like to in invite, uh, by the way, I wanted to mention that this event is also in cooperation with the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. And uh, every year they are supporting this event and uh, we're delighted to see the strong turnout of uh, listed companies and of course of everyone attending. And here is uh, our partner, Chris, who is going to give the introductory remarks. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to keep this brief. I don't like to stand in the way of people and their lunch. So I'm Chris Weatherby. I'm the head of transportation and shipping research at City. My colleagues from banking and lending are also here. We're very pleased to be joining with Capital Link for, I think this is the eighth year now. Um, first year in a while back in this room, so we're really excited to be here. Great to see all the familiar faces and really appreciate the, uh, the support and the partnership we've had with Capital Link. Shipping is obviously a very interesting and cyclical space, so I cover a lot of things across transportation and shipping, and obviously cyclicality is something I'm very used to. Shipping puts that on steroids, so I have to obviously be calibrated to the markets. And, you know, this doesn't feel like some of the best of times that we've had over the years in this room, but it also doesn't feel like some of the more challenging periods of time, even res with respect to uh, the last couple of weeks' events here. What I think is really interesting, though, is that everybody comes here, and I've said this uh, uh, several times over the years, I don't think anybody puts on a better show than Nicholas and his team at Capital. Like, I don't think you can get this many people in a room talking shipping anywhere else in the world, so really appreciate our partnership with Capital Inc. And the partnership we have with all of you guys in this room it wouldn't happen without you. So thank you very much. I'm not going to talk any longer than that. I'm going to turn it back over to you, Nicholas, and I think we can get on with our lunch progression. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you, sir. Chris, thank you. You've been a great partner and friend over the years, so thank you very, very much for uh, really your uh, support. Uh, what I, uh, the way we're going to progress is um, I will ask uh, the Assistant Secretary, Jeffrey Pyer, to come and deliver his remarks. Then we'll have the main course, and then uh, Lois will deliver her remarks. Uh, it is a, a great pleasure and honor to uh, introduce to you Jeffrey Pyatt. He's the Assistant Secretary for uh, Energy Resources. Uh, Mr. Pyatt is a career diplomat, uh, long and distinguished career all over the world, and uh, his two recent uh, posts were Ukraine, and Greece. Uh, he has done tremendous work on uh, everything international and now on energy, and uh, frankly, we are absolutely delighted uh, to have with us today a person of his uh, caliber, standing, and position, because energy today, as we, we all know, is at the top of everybody's agenda. So having Mr. Pyatt deliver his remarks on his initiatives and the government's initiatives on energy security, energy transition, could not be more than relevant. So I always call him ambassador because, you know, he has been in Greece for so many years, so I've been gotten used to uh, the title ambassador. So Mr. Ambassador, Mr. Assistant Secretary, the floor is yours. Good afternoon. Nicholas, industry colleagues, 
It's wonderful to be back in New York City and to join you um, here for Capital Link in my current role managing the geopolitics of America's energy diplomacy. I found it exceptionally useful to hear some of the industry perspectives in this morning's presentations, especially at this historically disrupted moment in the global energy trade. So huge thanks, Nicholas, for the invitation and uh, really appreciate the conversations that we've been having today. During my time as U.S. Ambassador to Greece, bilateral cooperation in the maritime domain increased dramatically, encompassing the defense, security, shipbuilding, and of course, energy sectors. And now in my new role, I'm glad to continue my engagement with the shipping sector at a time when the geopolitics of global energy is more complicated and dynamic than it's ever been. As Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine enters its second year, it's clearer than ever that global buyers will never again view Russia as a reliable energy supplier. The disruptions caused by the war have increased the prominence of the shipping industry as the United States has mobilized record levels of LNG to dispatch to Europe, and as our G7 allies work together to phase out Russian oil and petroleum products and to maintain an effective price cap. The maritime security, the maritime sector is going to continue to play a critical role in ensuring global energy security. Russia is trying to disrupt this, for instance, by establishing a ghost fleet of ships to move its petroleum products. These mystery vessels are of questionable provenance, quality, and safety, and should be avoided. At the same time, we are all confronting, as the, New York, as the United Nations reminded us this morning, a global climate crisis. And all of us, in government and industry, need to accelerate our efforts to move towards cleaner forms of energy, including, of course, American LNG. The maritime sector will also play a key role in the global energy transition, from reducing its own greenhouse gas emissions through the use of low and near zero emission fuels, to building an international transportation and trade network for new forms of clean energy, and the critical minerals that drive them, including green hydrogen and its various derivatives, abated carbon, and of course, a lot more copper and battery minerals to enable the electrification of our transport systems. These two lines of effort, energy security and energy transition, are complementary. We can and must advance both at the same time. That reality was highlighted for me just this Friday when I was in Seoul for our ninth energy dialogue with Korea. And all the maritime supply issues I just mentioned were front and center. If anything, Russia's war against Ukraine has strengthened global resolve to prevail in both of these efforts. It is only through a clean energy transition that we can ensure energy security addressing the urgent need for a sustainable future while preventing malign actors from again weaponizing energy resources. 
While we continue to help our partners and allies secure reliable energy supplies from trusted sources, the United States is also strongly committed to working with the shipping industry on its own energy transition. As many of you know, greenhouse gas emissions from the shipping sector are still rising. If shipping were a country, it would be one of the 10th largest emitters globally, a point that President Biden highlighted at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh last year. The State Department wants to work with you, our industry partners, to reduce emissions, and we are engaged within the IMO and through several multilateral initiatives to do so. At COP26, the United States joined other high-ambition countries by signing the Clydebank Declaration for Green Shipping Corridors and the Declaration on Zero Emission Shipping by 2050. To expand on these commitments and to help place the sector on a pathway to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, the United States and Norway launched the Green Shipping Challenge at COP27. This challenge encourages governments, ports, and companies to prepare commitments to spur the transition to green shipping. Our partners have answered this call, announcing more than 40 initiatives, such as the development of zero emission bunkering and recharging capabilities, and the development of renewable energy infrastructure. These initiatives also include programs to demonstrate and deploy low or zero emission vessels and to launch green shipping corridors across the sea. These initiatives are coming from global companies like Maersk and Amazon, which issued demand signals for zero emission ocean shipping, and the American Bureau of Shipping, which published guidance on green shipping corridors. Announcements have also included protocols like the Australia-Singapore Green Economy Agreement and the Belgium-Sweden Green Corridor. For our part, the United States has announced, among other things, the development of the first U.S. maritime decarbonization strategy, three new bilateral work streams to help facilitate green shipping corridors with the Republic of Korea, Canada, and the United Kingdom, and a new program to help facilitate green shipping corridors with developing countries, including among the small island developing states. In fact, at this month's Our Ocean Conference in Panama, we announced the first two countries to engage under this project, Panama and Fiji. The annual Our Oceans Conference is an important forum for dialogue between governments and industry and for fostering new programs. At this year's conference, the United States made 77 announcements from eight agencies and offices worth nearly $6 billion to cover all types of actions related to maritime resilience, including green shipping. I'm delighted that one of my last projects in Athens was the agreement that Greece will host next year's Our Oceans Conference. Given the prominent role of its shipping industry and the ancient ties between maritime trade and Greece's national identity, there could be no better host for the Our Oceans Conference in 2024, and I greatly look forward to joining that event. It is clear that we need a comprehensive approach to push shipping decarbonization efforts that show promise of being economically viable to own and operate in the long term. 
And in that regard, I was encouraged by Jerry's comments in the last panel on all of the work that's already happening on everything from efficient engines to methane abatement. Some of these efforts are being advanced under the First Movers Coalition, which has set ambitious commitments for carriers and cargo owners to use zero emission fuels in new build and retrofitted zero emission vehicles. While we continue to advance dialogue and draw attention to the necessary greening of the shipping industry, we also understand that this transition will be challenging for ships and ports because it can take 20 or 30 years to amortize a ship, the transition needs to begin as soon as possible with solutions both for existing vessels as well as new builds. U.S. technology can help with this challenge. For example, the Department of Energy has launched an $8 billion program that will bring together hydrogen producers, consumers, and kickstart regional hydrogen hubs which may well include ports or other maritime end-use applications. U.S. providers are also leading innovation on technologies, such as high-efficiency wind assistance and carbon capture and storage, which help to reduce emissions in the shipping sector. The United States is also committed to supporting the shipping industry transition through new targeted incentives and grant programs. For example, the bipartisan infrastructure law includes $17 billion to help electrify and decarbonize U.S. ports and ferries, and it ramps up R&D on advanced batteries for marine applications and zero emission fuels. The Inflation Reduction Act provides $3 billion for an EPA program that helps fund zero emission port equipment or technology, technical assistance for electrification and emissions reductions planning, and port climate action plan development. This is in addition to the broader incentives that the IRA will provide and will help to catalyze innovation and developments in alternative fuels. We're seeing a remarkable shift on greening the shipping industry, thanks in part to the programs and engagements that I've highlighted. And as we heard in this morning's discussions, we already see companies like Maersk, MSC, Yara, and others stepping up to shape the future of your maritime industry. A special envoy, former Secretary of State John Kerry noted after our, our Oceans Conference in Panama, this is exactly the kind of example we need to show to other hard-to-abate industries like aluminum and steel, and it shows how government can work with companies and the private sector to drive positive change. There is so much that we can do together. My team and I are committed to continuing our engagement with you, our, our industry partners, to address this pressing global challenge. And I'm very glad, Nicholas, to see that these transition issues and the critical role of LNG in energy security and all of the shifting dynamics around the maritime trade featured so prominently in today's event. Most importantly, I look forward to hearing from all of today's panels how we can continue our partnership. Thank you very much for your attention, and Kali Oryxi. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Secretary and dear Ambassador, thank you. And let's all enjoy lunch now.
and uh, I will be back with uh, Lois uh, a bit later on. So thank you to everybody. Dear friends, I'm sorry that I have to uh, ask for your attention again, but for a very good cause, because Lois is going to come and take over. Uh, Lois Abroki, I don't think that she needs an introduction. Uh, we are delighted that uh, she is our second keynote speaker closing the lunch. Lois has had an amazing career. She is uh, a tremendous industry leader and uh, we are absolutely, really grateful to have her with us. So Lois, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Nicholas. With that introduction, I don't know. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for being here. Before I begin, I would like to thank Nicholas and all of your team at Capital Inc. and all the sponsors. Having a forum like this is incredibly important for us in the industry. It allows all of us to get connected in the shipping industry and to come together to both learn and to share all of our experiences. How it used to be, how it is today, and then our vision for tomorrow. When we think about the environment and decarbonization today, quite frankly, it's overwhelming. It's similar to Googling online, what's the best diet? You are sure to get 25 variations. At International Seaways, about a year and a half ago, we hired a sustainability engineer, and she's here today, Lena Tenenbaum. And we're growing our resources to be able to sort through fact, actual pro pilot projects, and true advances, and fiction, you know, dreams of someday on decarbonization. As an industry, seaborne trade covers almost 60 billion ton miles every year. We are serious about our emissions and reducing our carbon footprint collectively. In shipping, we recognize that we touch every corner of the globe and that we have mountains to climb to meet the ambitions for year 2050 and beyond. Shipping represents about 3% of all global emissions. We must do our part to make sustainable choices, to bend the curve of environmental impact on the world. Over the past several decades, the shipping industry has made progress minimizing our environmental impact on the globe. If you go back to when I started in the industry, double-hull vessels were a new thing. And now double-hulled cargo tanks followed by double-hulled fuel tanks. Those early examples transformed the statistics in this industry and reduced loss of containment to almost nil. 
elimination of invasive species that threaten local marine environments. In the shipping industry, we have now largely completed the installation and retrofitting of ballast water treatment systems to avoid invasive species infiltrating. In 2020, the IMO's low sulfur fuel requirements led to global adaptation of cleaner, low sulfur fuel oil and the investment in newer technology, technology of exhaust gas cleaning systems, scrubbers. Today, about 20% of the global tanker fleet has invested in scrubbers. These initiatives have environmental benefits and an economic impact. The additional costs for owner's account are minimally passed through to the customers. This leaves the burden of compliance on the shipping community. Shipping accounts for nearly 85% of world trade. And we look to develop more partnerships with our customers in the future. When we think about decarbonization and the many uncertainties around it, as ship owners, we will struggle to absorb copious levels of research and development and implementation costs, which we may or may not pass on to the customer. Reducing the carbon footprint is a global responsibility. As ship owners, we will do our part and more assurance and technology advances will be required for us to accelerate decarbonization across the space. In an industry where the hard assets ride the high seas for 25 years and lead times presently for new buildings range from two to three years, there's a longevity in our investment decisions that is not necessarily matched by the rapid pace of regulatory change. We need to work together with our charters, our customers, all stakeholders to execute better voyages, better voyage timing, speed selection, and waiting times because each of these have a significant impact on our emissions and our footprint. As a result, increased partnerships within supply chains will need to be developed to allow us all to mitigate some of the speculative risks that we face on our path towards significant decarbonization. Regulation and enforcement are also important towards achieving the goals. As we travel across the globe and dock in multiple ports, the fragmented comp composition of both the trade and the owners all combine to create challenges. IMO, as our global regulatory agency, has taken steps to guide and to drive decarbonization. Currently, they are targeting 40% reduction of carbon dioxide intensity by 2030 and 50% of carbon dioxide emissions in total by 2050. 2030, then 2050. Over the next few years, 
IMO will likely adapt existing measures and introduce new measures that will capture all greenhouse emissions to further the decarbonization efforts. The IMO greenhouse gas strategy, which was published in 2018 and will be reviewed this summer, has made great strides in establishing and assessing how we will bend the curve of decarbonization. Energy efficiency design, the Energy Efficient Design Index, as we all know, EEDI, for new buildings, and Energy Efficiency Existing Index, for ships already on the water, established a technical baseline for all ships. And the Carbon Intensity Indicator, CII scores, will allow us to monitor and improve our efficiencies in day-to-day -day operations. All of these metrics, and especially CII, are far from perfect. It's important for us all to remember that we are in a learning phase for all of these measurements, and they are highly likely to evolve. There's a high likelihood that additional midterm measures will be introduced this summer, including market-based factors such as a carbon levy and a standard for greenhouse gas intensity of fuels. These measures may take years to fully flow through the regulatory text and implementation. Regional regulations and global agencies should continue to work together and with shipping to transition efficiently into a decarbonized world. For example, the EU is currently negotiating its Fit for 55 package. One portion of this legislation is a market-based measure, and it has already been finalized and included shipping in the EU's emission trading scheme from 2024, putting a price on emissions for EU traveling vessels increasing in percentages by 40%, 70%, and then fully to a 100% year by year, 24, 25, 26. The fuel EU maritime proposal, still under discussion, will set tightening limits on actual life cycle greenhouse gas intensity of fuels burned from 2025. Other trading schemes in China, in the UK, are also on the radar for future impacts on shipping. Our industry will need to work increasingly to make sure these systems are harmonized, look at greenhouse gases consistently, and do not double count between regimes. What is certain is that the regulatory environment will continue to evolve its plans for shipping and for our decarbonization. The key word is evolve. The switch forward to cleaner fuels will not be quick and it will not be painless. Nor do we think that there will be one dominant alternative fuel to fossil fuels. According to DNV, key well-developed fuel technologies for ship propulsion will be available only in the next three to eight years. Major hurdles exist today 
in the alternative fuel landscape. Along the shoreside portion of the shipping value chain, there's a lack of supply and a lack of infrastructure. The International Chamber of Shipping indicates to achieve the IEA's net zero emissions by 2050 scenario, the world would need an 18-fold increase in its existing renewable production capability with shipping alone contributing at least one out of those 18-fold increases. On the seaborne portion of the chain, a major hurdle with alternative fuels is the energy density of alternative fuels. Lower energy density requires more bunker space impacting a vessel's carrying capacity, visibility, and weight. For example, ammonia tanks will need to be about twice the size of diesel tanks to provide equivalent sailing reach. Methanol has about the same volume impact as ammonia, and it's almost twice as heavy as diesel. The world will need to factor into all of these alternatives with low emissions on a tank to wake basis. Some of these solutions could be even more harmful than conventional fuels on a life cycle. In other words, on a well to wake basis. Once life cycle guidelines are implemented, we will have a better understanding of the value chain of emissions impact of these fuels from production to consumption. Let us not forget, the key hurdle is safety. The safety of our seafarers is our top priority. And while we are sufficiently training, and they are well-trained in handling flammable fossil fuels, we will need further training and education to work with our seafarers to handle safely all of the alternative fuels. We need to acknowledge that the men and women on board our ships are knowledgeable professionals working in an increasingly complex environment with greater and greater demands. We need to evolve our relationships and our expectations with these remarkable individuals. These barriers to entry, along with the cost and competitiveness of fossil fuels, have an important impact on the path to decarbonization. This is why we think that there will be a multi-fuel future for the global fleet and at international seaways. The bunkering and powering requirements across the shipping sectors vary significantly. Even in tankers, the trading nature of an MR operating in far-flung small ports is very different than that of a VLCC. LNG bunkers are readily available in Singapore and in the US Gulf. This is not the case in many far-flung small MR ports. Smaller tankers will struggle presently 
to find LNG, ammonia, or methanol, and biofuel in many of the ports where they trade. Some ships may be better suited for drop-in fuels, like biodiesel, which can reduce emissions on a well-to-wake basis, but need to have their carbon content verified independently and consistently. Others in the industry may run on green or blue LNG, or methanol, or ammonia, all the better for the evolution of fuel propulsion to work with other stakeholders in the supply chain in developing technologies together. Now, what are we doing at International Seaways? Information and education are quite key to understanding how we're going to address our future. I mentioned earlier that we hired a sustainability engineer to attend webinars and conferences with reputable experts and to pass on the learning to the organization, both to management and to all staff. We are diligent in understanding the progress and timing of regulatory frameworks, both in the near and longer term. We are participants and collaborators in various ESG-focused groups like the Global Maritime Forum, the Clean Shipping Alliance, ITOPF, and NAMIPA, as well as projects like a carbon capture study in, in consortium with MARAD, and life cycle engineering, a think tank on transitional scenarios with Nordic West Office. We have an internal decarbonization strategy study. We just completed with DNV. We have scale and diversified fleet of 76 ships on the water that range in age from our newly delivered dual fuel LNG VLCCs to some MRs that are approaching 15 years of age. There is plenty of low-hanging fruit and investments that we can make today to improve our fleet efficiency and to reduce fuel consumption in the existing tankers on the water. Last year, we had 10 Suez Max vessels that headed into their dry docks. And we applied advanced hull coatings on each of these, Mavis ducts, boss cap fins. And here, what you're looking for is 3%, 5% of improved efficiency. I like the term bending the curve. These installations make an immediate reduction in consumption and emissions. To comply with EEXI requirements, we are installing engine power limiters on many of our vessels. A few years ago, we partnered with an oil major to build three dual fuel VLCCs, the first of which just delivered last week. These ships have a 40% efficiency over a 10-year-old VLCC. We worked with our partners to secure long-term charter on these ships with a market-based profit share to hedge and offset some of the risk involved with the installation of new technology. 
One thing that I'm very proud of, our chief officers joined the vessels months ahead of time, and it is a requirement to do LNG bunkering. You know, each of these officers had to go and witness and learn LNG bunkering techniques. All of this is just really important and it shows the investment. You know, shipping isn't just a commodity. The standards for everyone keep increasing. Similarly, we worked with a major financing institution to fund the CapEx to reduce our exposure. At International Seaways, we put our money where our mouth is on ESG. Last year, we enhanced our sustainability-linked financing to hold ourselves accountable, not only to the decarbonization trajectory, but we added extra factors of green spend and an LTIF, a lost time injury frequency component so that you keep everything together. Yes, you need to decarbonize, and yes, we need to have a safe environment for our seafarers. In closing, our decarbonization efforts continue to develop over time in the shipping markets. In order for all of us to evolve into the next chapter and a cleaner world, we will remain diligent and educated as well as flexible for the exciting changes that will no doubt be on the horizon. While recent events have led to our customers' concentration and focus moving to energy security, we have great collaborations with customers that will help keep us focused on evolving our future. Our industry makes very long-term investment decisions on our ships at significant capital intensity. And we should utilize all of our deep relationships along the supply chain to balance our collective risk. Uncertainty around the regulatory environment as well as even the technology for alternative fuels will remain a part of our short-term future. Together, we must continue to make strides now to bend the decarbonization curve. Thank you. Dear Lois, thank you very much for uh, a particularly insightful set of remarks. Dear friends, I did not make a big introduction about Lois because, as I mentioned, everybody knows her. But uh, if you allow me, I would like to say that uh, I'm, I would like to point out exactly that Lois is a person who really rose to the ranks. I mean, you started your career as a third mate on uh, a chemical product tanker a long time ago. You have literally uh, risen through the ranks through the years to become the CEO of one of the largest uh, tanker companies in the world. And uh, I think her speech uh, is indicative of the insight, thoughtfulness, effectiveness, and vision that um, uh, Lois and uh, her management team are putting to the company and the industry. So thank you for being with us. Uh, we wanted to have in this lunch the government perspective, because at the end of the day, government calls resorts to a number of uh, fronts, setting policy, and the industry perspective in terms of how the industry is fitting in the energy decarbonization and so on. So thank you, uh, Ambassador, 
Assistant Secretary Payet, and thank you, Lois, and of course, tremendous thanks to all of you. In closing, I'd like to thank the Capital Link staff for doing an amazing job and for putting up with me. Uh, you know, we have been doing events all over the world in a very short succession from each other, so thank you. And thank you to the sponsors. Without you, this event would not be a possibility. And uh, tremendous thanks. And for, your, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the brother of Olga. <laughs> so. And we can go, we have, by the way, a tremendous agenda for the rest of the afternoon. We have an analyst panel. We have a container panel. I'm sure everybody is looking forward to the container sector. And of course, we will close with the crude and product anchor. So please join us.